0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. All right, so we're going to do what Nick Bilton does best, and that is scare the bejesus out of you. My guest today is Jamie Metzl. He is a futurist, geopolitical expert, science fiction novelist, and media commenter, and he has a new book out called Hacking Darwin, which is talking about how gene editing is going to be the next big thing in humanity and it is going to change us humans forever. Imagine this scenario, for example, uh, if you could edit your kids' genes to make them so they're taller, they can run faster, they can see better than 20-20 vision. Maybe they have a little less empathy so they're better in business. Maybe they have more empathy so they're kinder, but then they get beat up more in school. We are going to create a, a completely new species of superhuman and whether we like it or not, this is what's going to happen. Jamie is here to talk to me about that. One of the truly terrifying aspects of this is that while the West has a viewpoint on this and they think about religion and the role of technology in society and how far we should push things, uh, as Jamie's going to talk about, the East and those in China don't necessarily have those viewpoints and they are already forging ahead before thinking about what the repercussions might be. So without further ado, I'm really excited to uh, welcome Jamie to the show. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. I have a million questions. I don't know how much time we'll end up. We'll be able to fit them all into. But uh, let's get started. So I'm going to ask you some kind of basics here for the people who don't necessarily understand that stuff, and that is me included. Hmm. Uh, I have read your book. It's fantastic, and I'm thank a little you. obsessed with this whole topic. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like talking about gene editing and the kind of the future of humanity today is kind of like talking about. Uh, it would be like talking about iPhones like 30 years ago is that is that apt? Is that no, kind of it's totally no. wrong okay. and
1: that's why I've written <laughs> the book. So, first thank you for the kind words. I'm really thrilled uh, to be here. One of my big missions in life is translating really complex science um, into terms that everybody can understand because this revolutionary science is going to change all of our lives and we can't say oh this is up to the experts. This is up to all of us. So, uh, everybody remembers 2007 was the year that the iPhone was uh, was created? And everyone remembers that first one. It didn't seem all that different from the other iPhones, and so that's that's my essential point in terms of genetically engineering our species. If you if we want to use iPhone terminology, this isn't 1997. This is 2007. The world's first CRISPR gene edited babies were born in China last year. The genetic age has begun. And because we are on this exponential curve of change, things are happening so much quicker. When you look at back in, in, in human history, I mean, there were thousands of years between when different civilizations entered the Bronze Age or the Copper Age or whatever. But imagine if they had just been able to send an email, say, hey, we got the recipe for bronze, here it is. Then it's like, oh God, we just jumped. Two thousand years in our in our development, and that's what's happening now. We are already entering the age of of human genetic engineering. It's already being applied to humans. Um, we're all connected uh, in these deep networks. We have more humans who are educated and interconnected than uh, than ever before. So it's two thousand and seven, and where this is going is going to fundamentally rock not just our healthcare the way we make babies, but also the nature of the babies we make, and just our sense of what it means to be a human being.
0: So let's just get into the basic fundamentals of what exactly is happening. So so a large portion of this is a result of CRISPR and all the research that's gone into this, and a lot of it's actually, which I found really fascinating reading your book, is uh, is partially because of artificial intelligence and computer yep. technology and how much that's advanced. Walk us through kind of where we are and how, how that reciprocate, how that kind of, flows through society in the way you were just talking about as far as us being in in the age where this stuff is happening?
1: Yeah, great question. So it's a bunch of, uh, it's the convergence of different technologies. Certainly AI and machine learning is essential. Genome sequencing is essential. Gene editing, you mentioned CRISPR, which is one uh, mechanism, one form of gene editing, but one of many, and it is not the last word, but the first word in gene editing, including uh, human genome editing. Um, so all of these technologies are coming together and that's why this moment is so revolutionary. And so the way that it's going to touch us is in in, in three kind of big categories. The first is through our healthcare. And so right now uh, for these last many, many decades, we have lived in a world of generali- generalized medicine based on population averages. And what that means is uh, when you go see a doctor, the doctor treats you based on your being a human, because there's so much commonality between humans, and that's why your doctor will say, all right, you have a headache, you take a Tylenol. But there's also a lot of variation between humans, and that's why there's some tiny fraction of us if you t- who t- will take a Tylenol, and they will die, and every year we're getting a you know, small number of deaths, and that's the, true with kind of every medication. Um, but we're moving into a world of precision medicine based on each person's indiv- individualized biology, and so, in that world, you are your doctor is going to know what kind of person you are and whether you're the kind of person um, who would be well-suited taking one drug or another. But how are they going to know that? They're going to know that because they're going to have more and more information about you, including your family history, your personal history, your biometric information, your blood tests and other things. But the most important piece of information that they will have is your sequenced genome. And the cost of genome sequencing has gone down from about a billion dollars in 2003 uh, to about 600 now, and it's moving towards really negligibility uh, within five or six years. And so everybody is going to have their whole genome sequenced either just after birth or even uh, even before birth when they were a pre-implanted embryo. And what that means is, first is that's going to transform healthcare because we're very quickly, when we have billions of people um, who've had their whole genomes sequenced, and we have their other uh, phenotypic information, which means the information about how the, those genes are expressed over the course of their lives, whether it's illness or education attainment or all uh, IQ, things that have a, at least partly genetic foundation, with those massive data pools, uh, we're going to be able to incre- increasingly Crack the code of complex biology and genetics.
0: So you so is, you're saying that the um, as a result of this we will move and we've to- heard heard a lot about this over in recent years that we're going to kind of move from a, a a world of healthcare to health prevention, right?
1: Yes, health and, and predictive predictive health. And so right now you go to your doctor when a symptom shows. We're going to hopefully move to a world where every you're at birth your greatest risk factors are known. So if you have an increased risk of breast cancer or type 2 diabetes or whatever, you're going to live a life in order to minimize the chances of those of those harmful mutations harming you.
0: So one of the biggest industries in the United States is the health insurance industry. And I've met some people who work in that industry and they, they like making a lot of money uh, and they don't necessarily seem like people who actually want this to kind of become a reality, because then it takes away the money they make. Is there is there a world which which the, the health insurance industry tries to stop this, or are they game for it because there's some other way that they can make trillions of dollars? Well,
1: they're already trying to stop it, whether it's by design or by default, who can tell? Um, one of the reasons why I personally support a single-payer national health plan is that If you have a single payer plan, or if you know that the the entity who is providing your health insurance now is the same entity who's going to provide your health insurance in the future, at least you could think that that health insurance provider, whether it's a government or a company, is a stakeholder that if they have information that I have this increased risk for some terrible thing happening, they're a stakeholder in having me do something about it now because that's much cheaper than me getting this disease twenty years earlier than I otherwise would. But if we have the case in the United States where average person changes health plans on average every eighteen months, so my health insurer, if they if they knew that forty years from now I had an increased risk for getting type two diabetes, what do they to encourage me to eat healthy and to exercise? that's just a cost. But they aren't going mm-hmm. to they don't they're not going to bear the burden of me on average of me getting that disease. So we're going to have to intervene with health insurance, but if you just think from a societal level, which some societies do better than others, if we put off the age when people get dementia, uh, when people get breast cancer or all these kinds of terrible things, I mean, not only are we saving trillions of, uh, of dollars, we're also unleashing human potential. I mean, every person who gets, dementia when they're 70 or 80, how much more did that person have to contribute to society? And that is actually worth something, not just in some philosophical sense, but even in a monetary sense. And then people living with these terrible preventable or offsetable diseases, I mean, there's a tremendous cost. So we we have to find a way on a societal level, maybe also on a personal level, but just of Anticipating where the savings come, but the, the critical point, going back to your original question, is that when we have billions of people around the world um, who are whose genotypic genetic information and phenotypic uh, information of how those genes are expressed are in these big, massive data sets, we're going to crack the code of complex biology and genetics, and that's going to lead first um, to the field of genetics being not just seen as a su- as a subset of healthcare but as a, a, a way that we just live, that when your kids are born, you're gonna have a lot of information, not just about their risk factors, but about things they have the potential to be great at, maybe abstract math or sprinting or, or what a physics, uh, all kinds of things. And that's going to change how we think about possibility, uh, maybe fate, um, parenting. And then with that knowledge, we're also going to fundamentally transform how we make babies.
0: So this is the part that is both exciting and terrifying. You know, when you talk about the fact that we could genetically engineer people to have skin that can handle radiation or that can hear like my German shepherd dog or run as fast as a cheetah. Very exciting stuff, but also incredibly terrifying. Um, As someone who spends their life reading and researching this stuff, are you terrified too? Or do you think like, okay, well, it's going to work itself out in the wash and society will, it'll be all ships rise and everything will
1: be just fine. So I think that the only logical response to all of this stuff is to feel an incredible sense of excitement and an incredible sense of fear. um, Because on the exciting side, I mean, how wonderful. I mean, nobody says when somebody gets, when someone's parents get dementia or their kids get cancer, nobody says, wow, this is really nature at play. I love nature. This is so great. People say, to hell with that. I'm going to fight back with everything I've got because if this is what nature is delivering, I don't want any part of it. And that's the entire history of our species. And now with these new tools, we're going to do it more. And that's really, really great. Um, we all know that this planet is going to go away. Our sun is going to explode at some point. And if we, if we want our species to go on, and that seems like a, a reasonable aspiration for, uh, for all of us, um, we should recognize that we can't do it in this biological form, and we're going to have to morph ourselves. If, we, if our planet heats up, um, we're going to have to change ourselves maybe in order to survive. So all of these things are either good or potentially good. But there is a tremendous, dangerous downside. Uh, I myself, I mean, my father and grandparents came here after the war as refugees from Nazism. And if you had asked the Nazis what they were doing, they would have told you that they were implementing Darwin's theories. And that's what Nazism at its core is. And so when we talk about remaking life, what we're also talking about is making decisions about what types of people should have the chance to exist, because I just talked a moment ago about uh, revolutionizing baby-making, but what the reason why I write about the end of procreative sex is more and more of us are going to have kids through IVF and embryo screening, because when you take conception outside of the human body, it allows us to apply science to the pre-implanted embryo. I want to get into this real quick.
0: So you, you talk in the book about, um, I forget the exact number, but you say that in the future, what is it, 80 90% of people you think will... By 2040, uh, they'll have children through insemination, uh, yes. through IVF. So, uh, first of all, I hope that doesn't mean, I hope that means we don't get to have sex anymore. That would not be that much fun. But no, no. Well, at you the have same sex, time, <laughs> you have sex
1: for fun. And for pair but, bonding but, so, and all the reasons why we do it, ninety-nine percent of the time now.
0: But but you'll but will there be kind of some sort of system where people are you know we take everyone's eggs and sperm and so on and 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 then kind of neuter them and then we put them together to, to ensure that they don't accidentally have a normal baby? I mean, how is that going to? Yeah, how I mean, does that I, work?
1: It, it, that would be one way of doing it. I mean, birth control pills also uh, also work, but. I mean, I think people will still have babies for probably ever the old, quote unquote, old fashioned way, um, but it's not, I think there are going to be a lot of risks that will be associated with conceiving your kids without the application of science. And so that's why we're already seeing it's a, it's around 2% IVF in the United States, it's about 5% in Japan. And it's about uh, about 10% in uh, in Norway and and Denmark and our biology in all these places is uh, is obviously the same. But what's different is is culture.
0: But isn't there? So isn't there? Uh, there's a, a result of the of IVF which is a, uh, there is a you know the, there's the positives which are incredible that people who could never have children before can now have them you know women who are in their mid40s having kids but there's also there's a downside which is that there's a, there are kids being born with uh, with issues that would not have happened uh, without this technology so it, well, but the that's, question that's, I guess I mean
1: so I, I yeah. don't know whether that's true I mean there, there's there's only a very small, number of studies that have uh, have suggested that. Um, so and but let's just say that it's uh, uh, that is true. and and Louise Brown, uh, the world's first IVF baby, just turned uh, forty one. So it could be that every IVF baby drops dead at forty two and we'll we'll find out at at, at Louise's next uh, next birthday. But let's just assume that that's right. Let's just say that there's a small risk associated with IVF. And what we'd have to do is compare mm. that risk versus the risk associated with natural conception so that we know we know that around 2% of all children are born with some kind of harmful genetic abnormality. So that's the target. Mm. Uh, and so let's just say hypothetically that with IVF, it was 1%, you're still doing 1% better than nature. I mean, nature, is by no means not dangerous, and and that is the starting point. It's kind of like with uh, self driving cars. I mean, on one hand, people say, well, they need to be perfect so they don't run over bo- either the nuns or the or the babies. But in reality, mm-hmm. we have so many people who are getting killed in car accidents uh, every day that even if the self driving cars run over the nuns and the babies, society is probably still so, still safer.
0: I completely agree on the the self driving car stuff. I think the, the 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 part where my brain has trouble with all of this. And I'm look, I'm I'm you know I've come from a family where every single person has died from cancer or, or Alzheimer's or mm. something terrible. Um, as a, a long generation of Ashkenazi Jews, mm. the, you know yeah, no, we're not, we're screwed.
1: Not, it's a, there is not it's not, not the greatest genes. You know it's it's not our fault. Um but it's just that a thousand years of isolation, which was isolation imposed by the other guys in Europe, uh, putting our ancestors in these little ghettos, and by the tradition itself, where you you know, with kosher, with the, our ancestors, they couldn't even go to eat dinner at somebody else's house. Um, so that's what you get with these little isolated, uh, communities in isolation (laughs) over a thousand years. And hopefully there's, the good news is there's not good and bad in in evolution with this kind of, uh, variance, there's good stuff and bad stuff. And certainly that's my view on Ashkenazi Jews, frankly, and and all humans. Well, I... I
0: I know. I think, but and I and I think it would be amazing. I would love to, to to you know to leave this earth knowing that my grandchildren wouldn't have those genes and those problems, and that they you know wouldn't have to wear glasses and have astigmatism like me and so on. But at the same time. I guess the, the question that where my brain has kind of panics a little is like, you know, you talk a lot about China, for example. Right. You know, China is at the forefront. They want to be at the forefront of this. They are. Um, I could – the the moral structure in the country is very different to the West. And you could totally imagine them saying, you know what, we're going uh, to raise a billion or a million kids that uh, are going to be built to just fight, just for war. They reduce empathy. They – up the level of uh of their ability to to do things that you know most humans can't whether it's from a strength perspective or the ability to break someone's neck without feeling guilty about it and you can take that a few generations and the question is is are we going to risk screwing the whole of society while we try to fix it
1: yes Next question. No, I'm okay. just kidding. No. So, <laughs> Do you know what is, I'm saying? Though yeah, it's no, 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 like so. It's, the answer it's... is yes. Let, let me just walk you through the the parts of your of your of your comment and, and then your question. First, starting with what you said about Ashkenazi Jews and the, the stigmatism. Being Ashkenazi Jew, Jewish again, like any group, the good stuff and the bad stuff are wrapped in a package, and so who knows why? You know, certainly we know why Ashkenazi Jews have. Um, so many genetic disorders. Is that connected um, to why Ashkenazi Jews are so far ahead of every other uh, group on earth in Nobel Prizes? I mean, it probably is in some way that that we don't understand. And so people like to think that these genetic interventions can be surgical, that we're going to go, oh, well, we know there's this one bad gene. But that one bad gene may be creating some harm in one context, but this the exact same gene may be part of some other set of patterns that are doing something good for us. So we certainly need to be careful. And on the point of China, I mean, China's whole motto is essentially move fast and break things. This is a society run by engineers that has a sense that all of life can be engineered and whether it's... Human uh, human engineering through the one child policy, environmental engineering through the Three Gorges Dam and south to north water diversion, uh, whether it's the Olympic sports schools, and there it's not surprising. And I, I write about this in my book uh, that that China is the place where this technology is being most aggressively applied because they have really brilliant scientists, they have a ton of money. They don't have a lot of of privacy or patient um, uh, protections. And there's this Wild West mentality among many Chinese and certainly the government that they uh, feel they got screwed over by colonialism and the British. And now they are in this race to to lead the world by 2050. And all of these advanced technologies and certainly uh, biotech and genetics foremost among them along with AI, are the ways that they're going to get there. And why this is so tricky is that what we're talking about is life.
0: Well, that's the yeah. So that's the part that is you know it's one thing if Facebook uh, screws up democracy and then we can say hey you know what let's uh, let's break them up and and um, we'll send in the, the the guards and they'll unplug some of the servers and so on. It's a whole separate thing if we create you know a, a billion people who are genetically modified and it turns out oh that didn't work out so well. We, what are we going to do? Extinguish them? I mean it's yeah. it, it seems like it seems like we won't be able to turn back the clock once it starts. And we, and the people who are thinking about it in the West, mostly, um, don't have control over the people
1: who are doing the things that they're doing. Is that right? It's partly right. So um, I'm a sci-fi writer. So in my it, two sci-fi novels, a guy wrote a book called Genesis Code, which explores this. It explores... A, a, a genetic arms race between China and the United States, and how it might start, and what it might feel like if you're just in a little town, and you know some pregnant young woman shows up. In this case, shows up and gets murdered, um, and and w- what that will will be like. And so, certainly, um, we all as humans are stakeholders in changes that may happen to other humans because. Um, if they make those changes, what happens if genetically engineered, genetically altered people procreate with non-genetically altered uh, people? What happens from, an, from a competitiveness perspective if there are some people who are genetically enhanced and other people aren't uh, genetically enhanced? I mean, it, you don't need to be a sci-fi writer uh, for your mind to go wild thinking of all of the, of the permutations. And that's why there's a race between this science that's moving forward incredibly quickly uh, and uh, our efforts to build norms and standards and ultimately national and global regulations that can begin to put guardrails around what is and isn't okay. And that's it's really hard and it's really complicated. We've tried, we've done it okay with nuclear power and chemical and biological weapons. We've been trying to do this sort of thing uh, with climate change, um, and like with climate change, there is the upside, the, and that's the re, the upside of all of these genetic technologies um, is they are going to help us live healthier, longer, more robust lives, and everyone's going to want that. But there are dangers, and so that's why this process of norm building is so critically important. But the time frame for getting getting it done, and or I should just say even getting started, is so short, and that that's why. I'm doing so much outreach, and and why I I love talking to people uh, like, like like you and and to your listeners, um, because we all need to be part of this process. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. If I were to kind of get in a you know cryogenic chamber and freeze myself for until uh, a certain period of time, and then come back to Earth, when you actually see these things in a in a real form, like actually that they've really the human beings have actually changed as a result of these, how how long is that? Well, how far away is that?
1: Yeah. Um, first, just as an aside, this whole cryogenic freezing. In my view, it's a bunch of baloney. People are wasting their oh, money. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> I'm totally not, agree. But, but I'm just saying, let's, let's live in our so, sci-fi hats for yeah, a minute. Yes, yeah. so, so let's, let's take your, your time machine and let's go back. Let's go back to okay. the time when uh, humans um, basically started controlling fire and, and realized um, that we could do outside of our bodies what other animals are doing inside of our bodies, which is processing food. And so when we started cooking our food, it allowed us to process um, the nutrients that our bodies need in a much easier way, and that freed us up for a lot of other things, and actually allowed it allowed the enhancement of our brain capacities. So we're already hacking ourselves. This thing that we feel like it nat- what it means to be a quote unquote natural human is already is already hacked. But in terms of the stuff that we're uh, that we're talking about, if you were to come back. In twenty years, um, what you would wow. see is well, you would see is first a transformation of our healthcare. People would start living more predictive lives. That you you would have a sense of these are the kinds of things that I need to be afraid of. These are the things that I might be good at. Um, you would see more and more people having kids through IVF. Not ninety percent, but. 20 in, in 20 years, 25%, 30% of all kids being born through IVF, and that means IVF plus embryo screening. Um, we'll see, so like I said, the world's first two uh, gene-edit CRISPR uh, babies were born in China uh, last year. If you came back in 20 years, uh, my guess is there will be Fifty to hundred thousand kids who would would be born with relatively small uh, numbers of uh, amounts of, of gene editing, either to reduce risks or to create um, uh, create enhancements. And then let's say you got back and you and you came back. Um, thirty years after that. Uh, fifty years. Uh, fifty years from now, you would see more of it. But if you came back hundred years, hundred fifty years, um, two hundred years you would see people with capacities uh, that feel to us now like they are outlier capacities. So you know, how often in your life do you meet an Einstein or a von Neumann or, or whatever? There'll be more of those because we're going to be able to identify them, um, which is, is critically important. And we're going to be able to manipulate the genetic processes for creating them. We're also going to see people, I don't know if anyone's going to be running as fast as a cheetah, um, but for some but for uh, some of our traits that are relatively simple, I mean, the number uh, that, beca- the reason is for a cheetah running, that's really complex genetically. But changing the way our eyes see, given that there's so much similarity between the biology of eyes, between say us and, and other animals. I could easily imagine uh, people with different kinds of of sight, different kind other different kinds of hearing, uh, that are more mimicking models that we will have learned about, that we are learning about from uh, from the animal kingdom. And I, the, I guess the bigger point here is that we think of our it as variable and our biology is fixed, but our biology is so unfixed. I mean, we went from being single cell organisms almost four billion years ago to us. And that single cell organism grew into all of life on earth. So there's so much play in in biology. And this model that we have now was always just one one stop. And it's not even a stop because we're always changing along the way. So what these technologies are going to allow us to do is really push our evolution in ways that would have just been unimaginable to our ancestors other than... Um, to the religious people who were imagining gods. Because in, in the great words of Stuart Brand, we are as gods, so we better start getting good at it.
0: So one of the things that I always wonder about when I hear these conversations and we talk about what you're what you've spent so many years thinking about is what's lost? You know, you always hear about artists who have become so incredible at their work because they suffered something, because they struggled, because that, you know, uh, they couldn't hear properly or they couldn't see properly or someone broke their heart or whatever it is. So how is there something
1: lost in this whole thing? I'll have two ways of of, of answering it. Um, so first, I'll start with the, the obvious answer: was yes, um, that we are humans. We grow through all of our experience, and our diversity. It's not a bug. I mean, uh, uh, diversity is the core feature of what it means to be a human being. The reason why we we didn't die as single cell organisms is that we had enough diversity so that we could change as the environment around us uh, around us changed. So. If we start to to just imagine that there's one ideal form of what it means to be a human being, and it could be things that all seem pretty good to us, like optimum health, you're not going to die of some terrible genetic disease, longevity, a healthy lifespan, a high IQ, tall, whatever that, that set of things is, whatever it is, however good it may seem, that it could be a fundamental threat to who we are and to frankly to our survival. Um, if we um if we all move in that in that same direction and, and if we're selecting embryos, um, you know, some of our great artists have been people who were on the scale of whether whatever it was autism or mania. Um, and well,
0: it's also it's. It's not just. I mean, I always think about uh, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Two, which uh, was actually Beethoven had really bad flatulence, mm-hmm. and the symphony was him uh, making a song that kind of reflected that. Like the, it's like oh. even on your like lowest levels, you have um, that's so funny. Uh, you have these.
1: My brother should have been. My brother Jordan should have. I don't. I don't want to call him out. Jordan J-O-R-D-I-N. Um, should have been a great composer by that standard. He was just—he was just missing the notes in between. <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: I uh, I worry that we we may end up creating a society where we have artificial intelligence creating our art and there's no there's no emotion to it. And I also look—I mean. Again, I I, I I don't mean to harp on this, but but you know I think that um, my mother passed away a few years ago oh, from um, from cancer, and it was a very kind of last minute thing, and it was an incredibly impactful moment, and and uh, and I miss her terribly, but at the same time it was also like an incredible growing experience in my life, and mm. I. And you know, led me down a number of different paths that I don't think I would have gone down had that not have happened. And and I just wonder if if we and I look again, there's nothing that we're gonna do to stop any of this stuff, and I think the end result is it's going to be better for society as a result. I just I just keep wondering what it is that we that we lose as a result of that.
1: But you that, know? but that's the fact that we have tools and very powerful tools doesn't mean that they need to be used in a particular way. So I totally agree with what you you just said. Um, But if we want these tools to be used in ways that enhance our diversity and our humanity, we're just going to need to articulate what we mean. We're going to have to celebrate diversity, for example, in a way that we didn't have to in the past because diversity was just baked into our biology. But we also can't Fetishize the downside. I mean, I don't want to make this too personal, but like, if you could have cured your mother's cancer, I know you would have. Um, yeah, you know, we humans, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, we humans, we've been plagued by these these terrible diseases that have wiped out mm-hmm. millions, tens of millions of uh, of people at a time, and that's that that is terrible. And as as someone who loves. Humans. All of my best friends are humans. Um, you know, <laughs> Maybe I think a dog that, or two. Or you no? know, oh my God, I'm, that's a topic for a different day. If if your best friend is a dog, forgive me. There's something wrong with you. Who are your other, who are your other friends?
0: <laughs> Did you, uh, as someone who I'm sure studied a tremendous amount of Darwin, and one of my favorite yes. Darwin moments is when he was trying to decide if he should get married, and he went through and put a list together of of all of the. Uh, uh, of all the attributes of the woman he was going to
1: going right. to potentially marry, and the last part was better than a dog. <laughs> I think Stephen Johnson writes it. So, yeah, no, it's true, and that's such a low, uh, low standard. But he was like really depressed, yeah, exactly. and he kind of sat in his house for like twenty years doing nothing. So yes, yes, you know, I don't know, but um, yeah, but all this stuff is is complex, and and basically the what we're doing is we are looking under the hood of what it means to be a human being like we are we we are we have these incredible powers and that means that if we want this entire process to be driven by our best sense of ethics and values and principles that we need to weigh in and the people who care um which should be all of us need to say hey this is this isn't just a topic for scientists and and experts this expert this is a topic for everybody, I'm on the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. And the thing that I am fighting for over and over and over in in Geneva is even if we, this group of experts, if we do a great job of laying out principles, and even if they're great principles, it's still not enough because in the 1970s, the scientists who were pioneering um, what then was called recombinant DNA, now called uh, uh, GM or GMO, they laid out principles. Those principles were largely followed. That's why consuming GMOs is 100% safe. There's no evidence at all that consuming uh, GM crops is is any less safe than than regular crops. But people don't believe it. People don't believe it because they weren't part of the process. They weren't consulted. This was something that well-meaning scientists and even companies that maybe were partly well-meaning and and obviously um, profit-driven did to them and and now we're talking about genetically modified humans and if we don't have an open transparent engaged process for bringing as many people as possible into this conversation now we're going to have have big problems that's that's why I've I've written the book that's why I'm doing so much speaking that's why I'm doing this work in uh, in Geneva what I'm really hoping we can do and trying to do is to launch a species-wide Dialogue on the future of, you know, of human genetic engineering because this is all of our future and it's coming much sooner than most people appreciate.
0: So you've written a tremendous amount over the years about China and uh, its threat to kind of the world order. I remember reading some of your op-eds. I think there was mm-hmm. one in the journal. Um, uh, you've given talks on this stuff. Um, uh, how how much is China a threat to us? Getting this right—are they, the—are they at the center of all this? Are they going to come to the table, or is it going to be an after-the-fact thing? Where does that whole, where does that
1: sit? So, the answer is we don't really know. Certainly, in this early phase, pretty much with all of these technologies, China is taking it and run, running with it. I mean, China is not by and large, developing the underlying technologies, but they are taking them and racing forward. And whether it's AI or killer robots or the extreme applications of uh, of genetic technologies. Um, having said that though, I think China recognizes that at, at a certain point, they're going to have to transition um, from being this rogue player who's just trying to catch up and beat everybody so at a certain point, you get to be big enough where you're a stakeholder in having a global system. And we've seen maybe, I hope, a little bit of that in uh, the experience of these, these first uh, gene edited babies, again, born in, in, in China last year. So China was bringing back its uh, its um, some of its top experts, um, these young scientists in what they called their Thousand towns program. They were giving them money, giving them labs, and saying, just go to it. Um, without and without a lot of restrictions or, or regulations, but when this uh, quote rogue scientist people call him a rogue, but he wasn't working alone. Scientist He Jiankui announced um, in November 2018 that a few weeks before the world's first um, two CRISPR babies had been born in China. At first, there was a lot of praise, including by the Chinese People's Daily, that this was like a big hero. But then. After the world condemned what had happened, the Chinese government did a quick about face and, and then started the, started cracking down. Uh, they just uh, the Communist Party just launched um, a uh, a Chinese um, bioethics and science ethics uh, committee that's that's relatively high up in their in their system. So we don't know. I mean, there's one view of China as just this this um, entity that's just going to very aggressively apply these uh, technologies for what it perceives, rightly or wrongly, as its own national benefit, and that's going to set the standard that everyone else is going to have to respond to. Um, the alternative view that at least we should work toward is, can China be a quote-unquote responsible stakeholder in the world? And climate change, I think, is an example of that, where China, in the beginning, was just saying, you guys created this problem, we're out, we're gonna grow as fast as we can. You know, now it's, it's, I wouldn't say China is leading, but it's certainly an important player in the climate change world. I could imagine uh, China saying, that well, we, we China recognize that the real money is going to be made through leading this transition uh, to, to uh, precision and predictive healthcare. I mean, that's where the profits are now. Um, yes, we're going to be able to, to significantly reduce uh, the number of children born with at least um, single gene mutation diseases and disorders, and that'll save you know huge, huge amounts of, of money. So I, it's an open question, but certainly um, we need to be worried about the role that China is playing in the world, because China is in many ways breaking the world without feeling the sense of responsibility that I believe it should, for building a world that everyone would want to live in. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Um, it's it's probably the the most terrifying thing I think to me when I think about just you know uh, President G's you know, he, understanding of artificial intelligence is race to, to be the number one. Of yeah. course, Putin too, but they don't have the technology or the brain power right. that China does to do it. Um, and when you kind of look at all the repercussions of that, it's, it's, it's slightly terrifying, and I hope you're right. I hope they do kind of yeah. realize uh, what's at risk. All right, so I have time for a, a couple more questions. Um, One question I have is, um, and I'm going to ask you to explain it a little bit first, um, but uh, polygenic risk scoring. So, this, you know, some of the stuff that I've looked at and read about is that, you know, these relationships between different genes and editing could have other effects. Can you explain a little bit about what polygenic risk scoring is and if it's something that will… Uh, maybe hinder uh, the way we um, we go through this gene editing and, and so on in the future.
1: So yeah, it's such an important concept that I that I really hope that you, that your listeners can can understand. In the old days, um, I don't know if people remember that they say, "Oh, there's a gene for that." Like, "Oh, he's really smart." There's a gene for that. There's a tall gene, a short gene, whatever it is. And now we, we we realize that most of our traits, not all of our traits, but most of our traits are genetically complex, and that means there are lots of different genes that play a small role in creating that uh, that that trait. Um, and so people were really disappointed in that in the old days, because they, because they thought. Well, you just make one tweak and a short person gets tall or a you know not so so smart person becomes smart. And now, I mean, there certainly are single genes that have big impacts. But by and large, these complex traits um involve uh, input from a lot of uh, of different uh, of different genes. And so now there's this concept, which is critically important, called polygenic risk scoring. And basically, what it means um is using, big data analytics to make predictions of certain outcomes and the reason why we're able to do that it's connected to what i said before of having these massive data sets of uh, people's uh, genetic and life information all together and so right now using polygenic scoring for example it's possible to rank people from high, from tallest to shortest without seeing them based on their genetic information. And so the way that that is going to be applied is a lot of things. One is um, from your genetic information, you'll get information about your own genetic risks. Uh, But also in IVF and embryo screening, we're going to have a lot more information about which of our pre-implanted embryos to implant in the mother based on projected outcomes of things like genetic component of IQ, personality style, and height. And that's going to be really revolutionary. But the reason why I'm somewhat conservative about the application of genome editing on human embryos, I certainly, as I said before, I think that we're going to be doing some of it, but it's not going to be like going to the Build-A-Bear workshop where you just pick a bunch of traits and then poof, you have a baby because of this genetic complexity. So I think that this concept of, of polygenic risk, and it's, not, it's, it's really polygenic life scoring, that's going to drive what I see as the primary mechanism for fundamentally transforming our species, which will be IVF and embryo selection. And that complexity will limit our ability to be too aggressive in using human genome editing to fundamentally alter uh, pre-implanted embryos.
0: Fascinating. All right. So, last question. Uh, hey, we're gonna we'll have a little fun here. Yeah. Uh, you have been thinking about this for a long time. You're a sci-fi writer. Let's let's talk about some fun, crazy, things that you've thought of that w- we could do to humans, uh, or even our our dogs, or uh, <laughs> cats, uh, and horses, and so on. Uh, but fun things that you've thought about that that we may end up doing um, that. Uh, that could change kind of the way we live or you know, the one that you talk about in the book is, is uh, your skin being yeah. able to deal with radiation more. What, what are some other examples?
1: So right now, we, I live in New York. Um, I live on the Upper East Side. And you know, when I walk down Park Avenue, none of the older people look like older people used to look. For some reason, people's skin is a little more tight. They look a little more youthful. Um, you know, the things don't seem to sag, uh, the way that, that older people used to in the village in, and remote Africa where I grew up. Um, and so we are already comfortable with making fundamental cosmetic changes to ourselves. Uh, we have tattoos as a form of, uh, of decoration. Um, so we're going to be able to redesign the way we look. I mean, sk- the skin color, for example, is relatively uh, uh, simple in uh, in genetic terms, and so right now we have the palette of skin. How big of a deal would it be to hack people to have blue skin or fluorescent skin? And we've already basically done that in in monkeys. It's possible. So, I, so there's going to be a whole range of cosmetic applications. Um, that I think people are going to want um, just because whenever there's a palette, people will want to to paint for that. Um, we're also, we are a a species that has evolved on the surface of this planet, but we aren't going to stay here. We're going to go to different places. Uh, and if we are going to be a spacefaring species, this biology is not designed for it. We're going to need to tweak our biology and we're, and we're, going uh, uh, to do that. So I, I just think that really anything that you can think of, we're going to be able to do. Well, and by do it, it doesn't always mean gene edit, but we'll certainly be able uh, to select embryos and then make small tweaks.
0: Do you, Will there be... How long will we be able to live as a result of this? Will, will there be... Will it be an extra 10 years, an extra 100? I mean, what do you think is the... Yeah, I think it'll keep the, growing.
1: I think it will keep growing because... Um, our technology is just getting better and better. And so first there's the issue of average lifespan and the easiest way um, to expand the average lifespan of humans um, is to do the things that we already know, water, sanitation, healthcare, nutrition, ending wars in the most disadvantaged parts of the world. That's the, the, uh, the easy win. Um, for ourselves, we all know that we should live like people in, in the blue zones. Um, uh, but, as I write about in the book, there's a whole range of technologies uh, that are coming and and coming soon um, that are going to allow us to push the current bounds of what our biology allows. and And so we will continue to live longer. We'll never we'll never live. Uh, forever, in my view, but just because uh, the, we have to have all of the parts actually working for, for such a long time, and then we'd have to overcome the law of averages of some weird chance thing happening to us the longer we, we stick around. But we are, I'm certain of it, actually, I'm um, going to continue um, to expand uh, to extend our average and our own um, healthy lifespan, and I think that's great.
0: So, last question: Do you 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 look at um, when you look at all this stuff? Do you believe that there's some kind of higher power or some some special magic in the universe or God or anything like that?
1: Not really. Um, you know, I, I certainly I believe that matter exists and that matter has qualities. Um, and you know, people like me or the the Pope. I mean, nobody can answer the the original question of how something came from nothing, and whether it's matter, like what happened before matter, and then you could say, well, matter is just the a priori model that's just what the universe is, or God, uh, like you say, well, who created God? Well, God just is. So nobody see, can answer that original uh, original question, but I. I I don't believe at least in some higher power with a consciousness, with a plan, with anything like that. But I do believe that all of life on earth comes from this same spark of life about four billion years ago and we're connected in this ecosystem. And therefore that creates a tremendous responsibility and and we have to find a Mm -hmm. way of balancing ourselves and and the world around us.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting every time I, I, I always talk to a lot of my guests about this, this topic specifically, but, uh, what I find so fascinating is, is the more you delve into the science and, and the biology of everything, the more that there's like this, there's this instruction manual. There's like a, there's like a whole like math sequence that goes into all of this. And it just, uh, the more I read about it, the more I hear about it, the more I think, well, okay, well, someone or something had to have put it, put it there, but maybe not. Who knows. Well, you
1: know, that, that's one, you could say somebody put it there, or you could say that there are just core principles, um, core values of matter. And and as it gets more complex, those same principles still still apply. But I mean, that's the beauty of conversations like this, is that everybody, and I certainly with the book and, and these conversations that I'm having, like we have to build a table that's big enough for everybody.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. This is truly fascinating. The book was really, really eye-opening and amazing and terrifying at the same time. Um, uh, Jamie Metzl, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. Uh, Thank you again. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to my guest today, Jamie Metzl. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me, and they are all equally as terrifying and fun and fantastic and insightful to listen to. Where can you get these incredible podcasts? All you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Type in Inside the Hive" with Nick Bilton. Hit subscribe. You'll love every second of it. Don't forget to leave an incredible review while you're there you don't have anything nice to say just don't bother leaving a review go do something else go for a walk i don't care do anything thanks to the folks at cadence 13 for their production work and thanks of course to my wonderful sponsors quartz bombas and honey please support them all the same way you support this podcast and i will see you next week